you have your Bibles, please open to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read two verses, verses 11 and 12. If you recall, last Sunday, Pastor Darrell preached a sermon on the Lord's Supper, one of the sacraments that we have here at Redeemer. And then last week, we actually got to partake of the Lord's Supper as well. Well, today, I'm preaching on the other sacrament, baptism. And how special is it that we're able to baptize one of our children today after her profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's all the Lord's timing, been able to do those two things on these two separate Sundays. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, if you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Pray with me. Lord, your word says that the grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but your word will stand forever. May your word go forth today and open our ears and our hearts to receive it. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. I think most of you all know I grew up in a large Southern Baptist church in East Tennessee. And I am so grateful for that church. I came to faith at that church at age six. I was able to grow in my relationship with Christ, memorizing the scriptures, sharing my faith. And that church taught me so much about the word of God and of Christ. I am so thankful for my heritage. But at about age 18, uh, that's when I was first challenged with Presbyterian or Reformed theology. And I remember those early days being challenged uh, with, with a slightly different doctrine concerning certain things. I didn't like it too much. I, I kind of pushed and, and fought against it. But for the next four years, basically from ages 18 through 22, I began an intense study of the Presbyterian or the Reformed faith. Now, I found that in my study, the more I studied the Word of God and the things of uh, reform, the Reformed faith, the, the more Reformed or Presbyterian I was becoming. But at age 21, there was still one thing I didn't get. One thing I just really struggled with coming from a Baptist church to a Presbyterian understanding of things. And that one thing was baptism. It was baptism. I couldn't understand a Presbyterian view. You see, up until that time, the only view I had ever heard was the Baptist view, which said that you must be baptized after you're saved, that baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. By the way, that's the exact words I used today with Ann Thomas. But my question was, why are Presbyterians baptizing babies? I didn't understand that. Now, it was about that time that some of my friends, my mentors, they began to come alongside me in my um, pursuit to understanding baptism. 
And they encouraged me to study the passage that we're using today here in Colossians chapter 2. They also gave me a lot of different resources to, to, to study, books and videos and, and things like that. And I want you to know that I have found in the last 20 years of being in ministry, I have found that many folks struggle to understand the doctrine of baptism. Well, today, I want to strive to do for you what my mentors and my former teachers did for me. I want to, to strive to equip you for ministry. And one of the ways to be equipped for ministry is to have a good understanding of the doctrines of the church. One of those doctrines being baptism. In your bulletin, if you look on the very back, you'll see the outline for today's sermon. But at the beginning, I have listed three resources for you. Take a look at that if you would. There's many, many resources that I have for baptism, but what I did, I said, I want to give my congregation what I call my top three. These would be the top three resources if you wanted to, on your own, study specifically infant baptism. Take a look at these. Number one is a book. It's called Children of the Promise, The Biblical Case for Infant Baptism. It's by Robert Booth. If you want to read something a little shorter, there's a booklet called What Christian Parents Should Know About Infant Baptism by John Sartell. And if you don't like to read at all, you'd rather watch a video, here's option three. It's by Dr. Richard Fred. It's a video, Why Do We Baptize Our Children? By the way, that video can be found on YouTube. Just type that in and it'll pop right up. So in today's sermon, though, I want you to know that I'm going to be leaning on these three men heavily. I'm going to be quoting them from time to time. But I want you to know as we talk today about baptism, what's my goal? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it's not. Today's sermon on baptism is not intended to be exhaustive. I'm not going to cover every topic. In fact, I'm not even going to discuss the mode of baptism or the minister who baptizes. Here's my goal for today. My goal for us today is to learn that baptism is God's sign and seal of his covenant of grace. It's rooted in the Old Testament and it should be administered to believers and to their children. So as we study that theme, let's look at it in four different ways. Number one, let's first understand Old Testament covenant relationships. Number two, you can see this on your outline. Let's learn that baptism replaced the circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Number three, let's look at the meaning of baptism to believers and to infants. And then finally, let's see, what is the responsibility of baptism? The responsibility for parents and even the baptized child. But let's look first of all at that first point, understanding Old Testament covenant relationships. So in that booklet, John Sartell, he says this quote, he says, every New Testament teaching has its root in the Old Testament. So let's start there. For instance, creation. If we wanted to learn about creation, we could open the New Testament, we could read about creation in John or in Colossians. 
But is that where the doctrine of creation starts in the Bible? Of course not. It starts way back in the Old Testament in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Sacrifice. The New Testament talks about sacrifice. We see the sacrifice of Jesus, but is that where sacrifice starts? Of course not. We know that. It starts way back in the Old Testament. We read of Abraham, Moses, and Aaron, and the tabernacle system. And friends, I want you to know that baptism is no different. Baptism is rooted in the Old Testament. We can't possibly understand infant baptism until we first learn God's view of covenant in the Old Testament. Now, Pastor, you say, what, what does covenant mean? Well, covenant simply means, and this is a definition by Dr. Pratt, a covenant is a solemn relationship which God establishes between himself and his servant people. We're going to put a slide up on the screen at this point. In the Old Testament, you're going to see five major covenants with these five uh, men, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. That God is going to come and make covenants with them that are progressively revealed through time. If you're in my scripture memory class, or, or you were in my memory class, you've seen this. This is no surprise. But as we walk through these covenants, we're getting ready to walk through all five of these men. I want you to notice something with me. That when God makes a covenant with these men, he also makes that covenant with their children. Let's start with Adam. Adam, we know Genesis 2 and 3, God makes a covenant with Adam. Adam and Eve were in the garden. God gave them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you will die. And if they would have obeyed, they would have had the blessing of life. If they disobeyed, the curse of death. And we know that Adam represented not only himself, but all of his posterity, all of his children. And when he ate of the fruit of that tree, not only did he die spiritually, but that had an effect on his children, on Cain, on Abel, on Seth, on all his posterity, including you and me. You see, within the covenant of Adam, it was made not only with Adam, but with his children. Noah, Genesis chapter 6 and 9. The Bible says that God demonstrated his purpose by directing his love towards Noah and his children. We're going to put another slide. This is Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18. God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife. And your son's wives with you. So we see it was not only given to Noah, but his children were included. And beloved, every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded of the covenant that God made with Noah. The third one is Abraham. When we think about Abraham, we think about Genesis 15 and 17. We'll show another slide. This is Genesis 17, verse 7. The Bible says, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and here it is, and your offspring after you. 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your offspring after you. And we know it was in that 17th chapter of Genesis that God gave Abraham a sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. A sign that was not only given to Abraham, but his children as well. Number four is Moses. Think about Exodus chapters 19 through 24. God gives Moses his law. But most of the, the law God gave to Moses, it wasn't just for Moses. It was for Moses and his offspring. In fact, you find in the third commandment, the Bible teaches us the effects of the sins of the fathers is passed down to the third and fourth generations of the offspring. So it was for Moses and his children. The final one is David, 2 Samuel 7. God comes to David and makes a covenant about the kingdom. He says, David, not only you, but your descendants, your children, Solomon and his child, Rehoboam, they will sit on the throne. The kingdom will be established with your line, David. So friends, as we look at Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, we see that when God makes a covenant with these men, he also makes the covenant with their children. Now, let's take a step back and breathe. For just a moment. That was a lot. We just walked through the whole Testament right there. That was a lot. Let me back up and let me say something now, which I think is one of the most important things I'll say today in the sermon. Specifically for me, growing up as a Baptist, to understand um, a Presbyterian view of baptism, this was one of the most important things that I had to learn. You ready? Here it is. Being in covenant with God does not guarantee that you're saved. Okay? Being in covenant with God does not guarantee that you're saved. You might be and you might not be. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Let's go back to Abraham. Remember just a moment ago we talked about Genesis 17. God gave Abraham a sign of the covenant. It was circumcision. It was to be given to Abraham and his children. Well, in Genesis 17, when Abraham received circumcision, was he a believer or not? He was a believer. See, two chapters earlier in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Two chapters earlier, he had trusted God by grace through faith and received salvation. And then two chapters after that, in chapter 17, he received the sign of the covenant. So he was in covenant with God, so he was a believer. But, what about Isaac? His little son. You see, when Isaac received circumcision, he was just an infant. He was an unbeliever. He still needed to do what his dad had done. He still needed to believe in, in God by grace through faith and trust God for salvation. Yet both received the sign of the covenant. Abraham as a believer, Isaac as an unbeliever. So for those who are in covenant with God, 
Some, like Abraham, know the Lord. And some, like Isaac, don't know the Lord and need to come to faith in God. And I want you to know, beloved, it's the same with baptism. Baptism has never saved anyone, and it will never save anyone. It never has, it never will. Listen, baptism cannot wash away your sin. Baptism cannot make you white as snow. Baptism cannot save you from hell. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. And that is received by grace through faith. So just because you receive the covenant sign, just because you're in covenant with God, does not guarantee your salvation. So now that we've looked at these Old Testament covenants, let's move to the second point. That baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Look back at your text. This is where this text really teaches us this replacement. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were once raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay. So a moment ago we spoke about Genesis 17 and circumcision. And that God gave Abraham circumcision as the sign, the sign of the covenant. Now, what's the purpose of a sign? The function of a sign? When our family goes on vacation, we all get in the car, and we usually get hungry somewhere along that trip. A lot of times we look for a sign. We usually look for the Cracker Barrel sign. Anyone, anyone do that? Go to Cracker Barrel, get, get a decent meal. Not, you know, not more expensive than McDonald's, but it's not going to break the bank. So we look for a Cracker Barrel sign. Let's say you're like me, and you're going down the road, you're hungry, and you look over to your right, and you see a sign that says Cracker Barrel, exit 36. Let me ask you a question. Is that sign Cracker Barrel? No. But does it point you to Cracker Barrel? Yes. You see, that's the function of the sign. The sign is not the reality, but it points you to the reality. We need to understand that. As we're talking about signs of the covenant, whether it's circumcision or baptism, we need to understand what the function of the sign is. The sign is not the reality, but it points you to the reality. It tells you how to get to the reality. Beloved circumcision in the same way. It pointed Abraham and his children to a greater reality. Circumcision represented cleanliness, specifically the need to be cleansed from sin. And we know that circumcision, it involved bleeding, it involved cutting, it, it involved the removal of something. So for Abraham, circumcision pointed forward to the need for someone to come, for someone to be cut, for someone to bleed, for someone to remove his sin. Now you and I, you and I know that the New Testament takes this Old Testament lesson and it answers that question. Who is the one who would come to be cut 
and bleed and take away our sin. That was Jesus. See, right here, I want you to know the sign of circumcision preaches the gospel. It points you to the one who is going to come and shed his blood once for all for the removal of sin. You see, circumcision was a sign that pointed to a greater reality. Circumcision wasn't salvation, but it pointed you to the one who can give you salvation by being cut and bleeding and removing your sin as far as the east is from the west. It points you to Jesus. So let's transition now from this Old Testament story of Abraham to the New Testament, to the text we're in today. Because today, the Apostle Paul, when he writes this text, Jesus had already died on the cross. Jesus had already come and been cut once for all. Jesus has shed his blood. It is finished. The removal of sin had been accomplished. And as far as spiritual cleanliness goes, the gospel says, come to Jesus. You can have your sins forgiven by grace through faith in him. But now, on this side of the cross, we're not looking forward to what Jesus is going to do like Abraham did with the cutting and bleeding. We're looking back upon what Jesus has done because Christ has already fulfilled the bleeding, the cutting, the removal of sin. So guess what? A new sign of the covenant is needed because there's no more need to shed blood. There's no more need to be cut. See, we needed a sign that, in, that not, not one that involved bleeding, but one that involved washing. Not one that involved cutting, but one that pointed to cleansing. And according to this text, God replaces circumcision with baptism. This text teaches us that baptism is the new sign of the covenant. You know, when we think about water, that's the universal cleaning agent. Hey, your kid runs down the sidewalk, trips and falls, scrapes his knee or his elbow. What do you use to clean that cut? Put some water on it. Get the dirt out. If you're teaching a chemistry lab or a science lab, and maybe one of your students doesn't have glasses on, and something gets splashed in their eyes, guess what is already in the lab? It's already there. It's an eye-washing station that puts what in your eyes? Water. Water is the universal cleansing agent, and it's water that God chooses to be the sign and seal of his covenant of grace. Since water points back to the cross, this water that runs down the head cleanses and it points to the blood of Jesus. That if that blood of Jesus runs over your life, yes, that's how you'll be cleansed by Christ. And Jesus instructed us, as Daryl read a moment ago, the Great Commission to baptize with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Simply put, 
that circumcision pointed forward. It pointed forward to Jesus, one who would be cut and bleed and remove our sin. Baptism. It points back to Jesus. It says he's already come. He's already shed his blood. Here's the sign of washing, of cleansing. This is what Jesus' blood can do to your life and to mine by grace through faith. So point number three, what does baptism mean specifically to the believer and to the infant? If you watch the Pratt video, this is where that video is outstanding. Uh, please make note of that if you watch that video. Let's first talk about this. What does baptism mean to a believer? We had a beautiful example of that, of this this morning with Ann Thomas. Ann Thomas had already professed her faith. She came to receive the sign of the covenant. Dr. Pratt says it this way. A good question to ask, and we spoke of it a moment ago. For the believer, if we're wondering what baptism means to a believer, since baptism replaced circumcision, we should ask this question. What did circumcision mean to Abraham? Because remember, he was already a believer when he received the sign, didn't he? Wasn't he? I want you to know that just as Abraham demonstrated his faith in God by receiving circumcision, today, today believers demonstrate their faith in Jesus by being baptized. We're going to put a slide on the screen. This is Romans chapter 4, verse 11. This is Paul writing on the New Testament talking of Abraham. He received the sign, there it is, the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith. So, as Dr. Pratt says, it's from the inside. That the faith that Abraham, Abraham had on the inside is expressed outwardly in his circumcision. For Ann Thomas today, the faith that she has in, in her, in herself, inside, is expressed outwardly in baptism. It's from the inside out. All Christians agree here. Let's get to the part where all Christians don't agree. The question I asked at the beginning of the sermon, so why are we baptizing infants? Well, this goes back to our first point on covenant. Remember, the Bible has always taught believers that the sign of the covenant was to be given to believers and to their children. Yes, Abraham was a believer. We know that from Genesis 15. He received the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17. But he also gave that sign to his infant son, who was an unbeliever, who did not no God by grace through faith. So how do we explain that? First of all, let me say, as we noted with all those covenants, God makes the covenant with the person and his children. Remember, being covenant with God does not guarantee salvation. But the Bible does say that if you're in covenant with God, if you're a believer, you're to give the sign of the covenant to your children. In fact, there is never a command in the Bible for believers to stop giving the sign of the covenant to their children. So how do we explain this? 
How do we explain infant baptism? Well, a moment ago, when we explained believer's baptism, we said a good question to ask was, what did circumcision mean to Abraham because he was a believer? So as we talk about infants, the good question to ask is this, what did circumcision mean to Isaac? I mean, we know what it meant to Abraham. It was an outward expression of the inward reality. But what did it mean to Isaac? Listen, there's no inward reality in Isaac right now. He's an infant. He doesn't know God. How do we explain that? I want you to know that baptism is going to mean something different for the believer than it does the non-believer. To the believer, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. But to the unbeliever, to the infant, it was a reminder. It was a reminder that Isaac needed to have personal faith in God. You see, for Isaac, it was from the outside in. For Abraham, it was from the inside out. Here's what I mean. Inside out, Abraham believed God on the inside. It was expressed outwardly in circumcision. For Isaac, he had no inward reality. So the outward sign pointed in to Isaac and was a reminder to him later in life, listen, Isaac, just as you were circumcised on the outside, you need a circumcision of heart. Isaac, you need to repent. Isaac, you need to believe just like your dad did. I got a great quote, we're gonna put it on the screen. This is from Dr. Pratt. He says, with adults, an inward change gave rise to an outward sign of circumcision through the process from the inside out. But the process was the opposite for the infant. The outward sign of circumcision called the child to an inward change. It's a process from the outside in. You could say, Isaac, when he got a little older, listen, you were circumcised as a child and the circumcision is preaching the gospel to you. Just as this was removed, skin was removed on the outside, you need to have your heart circumcised, Isaac. You need to repent. You need to believe this circumcision. It anticipates the salvation that is promised to you if you repent and believe from the outside. Well, let's look at our final point, beloved, the application. How does this apply I want to talk about this in two ways, the parents and the children. So listen up. Parents, if you're here today and you've had your child baptized as an infant, let me tell you, as I've said through this whole sermon, baptism does not guarantee that your child will be saved. Parents, if the only thing we do is baptize our child and just leave that child alone, if we don't give them anything else, any other teaching or praying, we should never expect that child to be saved. The Bible says that we have to teach them, pray with them, pray for them, specifically for their salvation. This is, a, this is a good time maybe for a reminder of one of the vows we take as parents when we baptize our children. Listen, parents, to this vow. We ask in infant baptism, do you unreservedly dedicate your child to God? Do you promise in humble reliance upon the divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with him, that you will pray for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment 
to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Parents, baptism calls us to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are we praying with them? Are we praying for them? Are we teaching them? That's the call of baptism to the parents. But now lastly, let me speak to the children. If you're here today, kids, listen up. If you're here today, if you're a child, if you're a youth, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student, I want you to scoot up on your seat a little bit and lean into this because I want you to hear this. I want you to know if you were baptized as a child, you have been given the sign of your parents' salvation and your baptism is preaching to you. It's calling you. It is imploring you to repent and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. I want to read to you a quote from Sartell, one of the ones I mentioned with the booklet. Listen closely to this, children, youth, teenagers. You have blessings that the children of this world have never, ever known. Sodom had no Bible, but you have been taught God's word. You have been prayed with and prayed for, have been given godly examples, and have been taught the law and the mercy of God. If you do not live for the Lord, a worse judgment awaits you than awaits the children who never knew this blessing. Your baptism as an infant is a call to Christ by God. If you do not heed that call, I would rather be the son of an atheist than be in your shoes. As the Lord Jesus said to the city of Capernaum, which remained unrepentant, though it had, he had performed many miracles there, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you, young people. Your baptism is calling you to come to Christ, to repent and believe and follow hard after Jesus. As we close this morning, just a little review. As Sartell said, every New Testament doctrine is rooted in the Old Testament. So don't disregard the Old Testament. You look at New Testament doctrine. We see that Jesus Christ fulfills Old Testament circumcision in his body and blood. He was cut. He bled. He removed your sin. And the washing of baptism replaces that sign. It means two different things. To the believer, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. It's from the inside out. But for the infant, it's from the outside in. The outside of the water coming down on the head over the infant is a call to that infant. Repent. Believe. So that you can have your heart cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Parents, remember, and I'm included, let's remember our responsibility not just to baptize, but to teach, to pray with, to pray for. And children, remember, your baptism is not silent. 
It's calling you. It's pointing you. Come to Christ. Pray with me.